Well, this is part four of a uh, preaching series that we've been going through the book of Acts. And we've made it to chapter two, hooray, which famously, of course, describes the events on the day of Pentecost when God, the Holy Spirit, comes and fills his disciples and the mission of the church is launched. And it is dramatic and it's supernatural and it's awe-inspiring. And it's also been the subject of much speculation and confusion, particularly in the modern era, actually, with a renewed interest in the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the believer, uh, developing really since the early 1900s through the Pentecostal movement. And much ink has been spilt. But what is unmistakable is this, that the event marks a huge milestone in the development of God's great plan of redemption. And this plan was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And it manifested in the person and work of Jesus through his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension. And now it manifested itself through the person of the Holy Spirit when God's plan exploded into the world. Well, my plan today is to look at this coming of the Holy Spirit in three B's. Three B's. The first B is the big picture. The second B is the bits that are in the details. And the third B is the actual baptism of the Holy Spirit itself. So first, the big picture. And I have to tell you, I, I find this quite exciting because this is one of those keys that helps you to unlock and understand the Old Testament. You see, turning to our passage today, the truth that God's plan was following a pre-ordained course is actually shown in the very first verse, which says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together and in one place. Now, I don't know if you've uh, done a lot of study. I'm sure you've heard some of these ideas. But it's interesting when I first heard of the idea, and it was developed a bit more when I went to seminary, and that was starting to understand that the Jewish calendar of the feasts themselves were actually prophecies regarding Jesus and of God's plan of redemption. That is, his plan of dealing with sin and restoring creation to last into eternity. Now, the feasts are prophetic because they are a foretelling of what was to come. And Pentecost is one of those feasts. And so if you turn with me now to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 provides a list of some of the feasts that the Lord prescribed for Israel to follow. Leviticus is one of those books when people start to read the Bible, they often get stuck at Leviticus. But it contains this very interesting 
passage in chapter 23. And as you can see, the Sabbath is listed first there in the third verse. And the book of Hebrews makes clear that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. You look in Hebrews chapter 4 for a fuller explanation of that. But as Israel was not to do any work on the weekly Sabbath, but rather to rest in the Lord, so Christians are not to work, but to rest in the finished work of Christ for their salvation. The Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said, not the other way around. So even it built into the idea of the Sabbath is the idea that God's plan of redemption is to be found, that we are to rest in God, not in our own strength. Next in Leviticus 23 is the week of Passover, which is also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One followed the other straight away. All Jews had to come to Jerusalem for this particular feast. And this recalls the night of the 10th plague in Egypt when the angel of death passed over the land and killed the firstborn of everything as judgment. Exodus 12 gives the details where the Israelites were spared, having killed the unblemished Passover lamb and eating it as the Passover meal after putting its blood over the doorway to their homes. And this clearly is a type of Christ, isn't it? Who being unblemished by sin, shed his blood so that eternal judgment would pass over us. Interesting that Jesus actually died right at the time of Passover. You remember the story. And the Israelites also ate unleavened bread during this festival. Leaven, what's leaven representative of? When Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, he's saying that it's representative of sin. So unleavened bread is the bread without sin, of which Jesus said he was the bread from heaven which the Israelites were to take into themselves as they ate this meal. And as if there was any doubt about this, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So God's plan of redemption starts to become even clearer as we see, not only are we, are we covered by Christ and his sacrifice, but we're also to internalize his purity and to become sanctified. Next is the Feast of First Fruits, which happened in the middle of Passover week. It was the beginning of the barley harvest. No surprise, of course, that these are linked to agricultural practices. It was the beginning of the barley harvest and a sheaf of barley would be waved before the Lord. And this happened three days after Passover. That that day is Sunday, the very same day that the resurrection would happen. The feast of first fruits. Again, Paul is helpful by writing in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
So here we have the Feast of First Fruits, which is pointing towards the death of Christ and his resurrection being the fruit, the first fruit in this plan of redemption. And his sacrifice would bear fruit and his own transfer from death to life was just the beginning. It was just the first fruit. There would be many after him who would experience that transfer from death to life. Finally, the next feast that I'm going to be looking at today and the one we're interested in was the Feast of Weeks or of Pentecost. Pentecost meaning 50th because it was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. The Jews had to return to Jerusalem again for this feast. So they would come for that cluster that was all together for Passover and the unleavened bread and the first fruits. They were all within days of each other. And then if they had to go back and do some other business, but 50 days later, they would be coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And this was when the much larger wheat harvest began. And of course, we know that wheat is often used to represent the mission field in the Bible. Uniquely in this feast, and you can see this in verse 17 in Leviticus 23, leaven here is included. And two loaves with leaven are made for the offering. Now, the leaven was actually made from the earlier barley harvest. But actually, previously, no leaven was allowed. In fact, as part of the earlier feast, you had to get rid of all leaven. And if you had some leaven, you were actually cut off from Israel. So they had to make new leaven from the barley that was from that first fruits. So now, leaven is suddenly acceptable. So in this much bigger wheat harvest, that which was previously sin sinful was suddenly now acceptable to the Lord by means of the new leaven from the first fruits. You can see how that applies to Christ. Christ, being the first fruit, comes and applies his righteousness to us and it affects us, and we who are sinful are still accepted by God because of the leaven of Christ in our life. So this anticipates both a transformation, but also a reaping of souls. It's the harvest, it's the wheat harvest. And it was to happen when the most number of Jews would be present in Jerusalem. So it's by no accident that God had so arranged these festivals that all these Jews would come into Jerusalem from all around at what times? Well, at the time when they would witness the death and the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit also. So it's no coincidence that on the day of Pentecost, they were all together and in one place. 
God's plan of redemption is clearly being played out here in Acts chapter 2. One can only be amazed at God's sovereignty that's on display here. It's amazing stuff. So there you go. We've managed to finish the first verse. (laughs) I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, because I think actually having this big picture, understanding that there is a a bigger plan that God has already preordained that is in play here, helps us to understand what is going on here in Acts and indeed what's in the Bible and, and indeed what's actually even yet to come. And the reason why this is helpful is because one of the big debates actually about the whole book of Acts actually is to discern if what is described throughout the book is this normative for all Christians? Should we expect to have these sorts of experiences all the time and be able to do all of the things that that they did there? Is this normative? Is this the standard that we should work towards and expect all the time? Or are there some components that are unique to that time only because it is such a key milestone in God's plan of redemption that God emphasised these things through miracles and signs, signs to indicate that he was doing something here. We need to keep these things in mind as we now turn to start to look at the next part, there's bits in the details of our passage. And in particular, the strange manifestations that happened at the time of Pentecost. So let's have a look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now suddenly, of course, indicates a dramatic entrance, a sudden change in contrast to that which had gone on before. Suddenly, things changed. The coming of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was certainly that. And it wasn't just that the Spirit hadn't been around before. Of course he had. But it was that he was now coming from heaven in a new way. But why did he come? As a wind, or at least the sound of a mighty wind. Well, you might remember that Jesus had spoken, I think I preached a message on this when I was talking about uh, Nicodemus. At that time, Jesus had spoken of the Spirit being as a wind that blew where it wished when he was talking about being born of the Spirit in John 3.8. And you might also remember that Jesus, on one occasion, came to his disciples and he breathed on them and told them to receive the Holy Spirit as he breathed on them in John 20, 22, seemingly anticipating this event at Pentecost. And in a similar way, you might remember that famous story in Ezekiel 37, where the prophet prophesies breath from the four winds to breathe on the dry bones that they might live. And Elijah, he waited for a gentle breeze to indicate that God's presence was near in 1 Kings 19. But here, this occasion, of course, 
is different. This was the fulfilment of God's promise that there was going to be increased power coming upon the disciples and the apostles through the Spirit, so a mighty wind this time was fitting. And wind indicates action, doesn't it? It's, it's got movement about it. Uh, and they would soon move, wouldn't they, from sitting where they were in that room to being active outside, now that their sails, if you like, were being filled by this new wind. I also think it's interesting that that verse 2 there says that the wind, or the sound of the wind even, filled the house in which they were seated, which is a bit of a picture as to what was about to happen in their house or their tent that they're seated in is about to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, this manifestation of the violent wind coming when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody or some people, we don't read of this manifestation, manifestation happening again in the book of Acts. So let's move on to verse 3 now. So not only was there a violent wind, but also it says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. It's important, I think, to note from verse 3, it's easy to get drawn into the amazing manifestation of the fire, but I just want to point out that this, this note that the Spirit came upon each of the disciples, and here we're not talking about just the apostles. You might remember that in this place there was 120, about 120 disciples were in this place. And the Spirit came upon each of the 120 disciples, not just the 12 apostles. You see, the Spirit is given liberally to all the disciples. Certainly, the apostles have something unique, being the ones with authority, specially selected by Jesus himself. And certain believers, of course, as we know, begin to demonstrate miraculous power gifts as the story of Acts develops but the Spirit is not given to just some and not to others. Nor did any of them actually have to particularly seek or do anything special, particularly. They were told to go and wait. The Spirit fell on them as he pleased and as Jesus had promised. And this happens again in Acts 8. It's almost like there's a couple of other many Pentecosts that happen in Acts. In Acts 8, all the God-fearers there are waiting to hear from Peter, and as Peter's preaches, while he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on them, falls on them all, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Acts 8 is where the Samaritan believers all receive the Spirit. Acts 10 is where the God-fearers and the centurion all received the Spirit. In Acts 19 also, the Gentile believers in Ephesus all receive the Holy Spirit. But once again, only here do we read of tongues of fire visibly resting on the disciples. So it's worth asking the question, why tongues of fire? God just doesn't pick these ideas out of a hat randomly. 
There's always a reason. There's a sign. There's a symbol. He's always trying to communicate to us. And of course, fire in Scripture was often associated with the presence of God, actually. You can think of the burning bush that Moses came across, which was holy ground. And the fire on the mountain at Sinai. And many other examples I'm sure you can think of. And it also usually points to two important aspects. I'm talking about fire. One is purification, where gold and silver are revealed when the dross is burnt away. And this is consummate, isn't it, with the Holy Spirit by his nature, being holy, being pure. And also because one of his prime ministries is to lead us into repentance and also sanctification. So it makes sense that the Holy Spirit comes with this fire. The other aspect of fire is judgment. And that is indicated, interestingly, by John the Baptist when he prophesied actually about the coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit in Luke 3, 16 to 17. Turn to that with me. Luke 3, 16 to 17. It's an interesting passage. The people are asking John who he is. Is he the Christ? And in verse 16 of the third chapter, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat, the wheat, uh -huh, the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here you can see the clear link between the Holy Spirit coming in fire. And there's an, there's an aspect of judgment involved with it. Because whether being baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire is a positive experience, which leads to purification and salvation, or whether or not it's a negative experience resulting in judgment, well, it depends, doesn't it, on the heart response of each person. And the phrase divided tongues as a fire kind of reinforces this idea. Tongues of fire, well, that evokes images of the fires of judgment, doesn't it, in some ways. But also, positively, there can be tongues on fire, prophesying, preaching and praising God through the power of the Spirit, which is exactly what the disciples will begin to do. Well, let's have a look at the fourth verse now. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Don't know about you, but here's this big event, a big mark, a big turning point in God's plan of salvation. We've got fire, we've got wind, and now what's going to happen? You know, it's, 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 one of the disciples is going to lift up into the air uh, you know, or uh, suddenly start to glow or um, you know, something really magnificent. Well, no, instead of that, they start to speak 
in other languages. Why speak in other languages? Well, I think, once again, there are two aspects, both of which have their origins in the Old Testament. I hope you're enjoying this understanding and, and, and revealing of the stuff in the Old Testament coming to pass in the New Testament. The first aspect traces back to the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where you might remember where God judged proud and autonomous man for trying to build his own city, make a name for himself, and not be dispersed in violation, actually, of God's command to fill the earth. Being of one speech at the time resulted in their sin flourishing. And so to restrain them, God judged them. And how did he do that? Well, we can read that in Genesis eleven seven, where God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, I think that particular verse is interesting because it's the exact opposite of what happens at Pentecost. So in Babel, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. But at Pentecost, it's a clear and direct reversal of this curse. But in Jerusalem, God came down and he gave the disciples utterance of other languages so that suddenly another speech could be understood. This was a sign that in Christ and through the Holy Spirit, the barriers between nations would dissolve so that the kingdom of God would contain people from every nation, from every tribe, every people, and specifically, as it says in Revelation 7, 9, every language. The church, therefore, implicitly, was not to be limited to Jews only. Although at Pentecost, they were Jews, although they had come from the scattered different locations where the Jews had been scattered to in a diaspora. But the church was not to be limited to Jews only, but also to other groups of people whom God would draw to himself as the adventure of Acts continues. I did mention the second aspect of speaking in other languages. When you think of the Old Testament, there is another reference to speaking in foreign languages. And again, it has the ring of judgment to it. In Isaiah 28, 11, God warns Israel that judgment is looming in the form of an invading foreign army, in this case, Assyria. If they reject his word spoken by the prophet Isaiah to the weary and the heavy laden to find rest and comfort in him rather than in fleshy pursuits. Have a listen to this, Isaiah 28, 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. The implication is 
that just as Samaria, the capital of the northern tribe of Israel, just as Samaria was destroyed by the dominant Assyrians when they rejected the word of Isaiah, so too Jerusalem would be destroyed by the dominant Romans if they rejected the word of an even greater prophet in Christ. And the warning sign for this, set as a precedent in Isaiah there, in the word of God, is the strange use of foreign languages. That this scripture is actually relevant to the phenomenon in Acts is actually attested to again by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 22, where Paul writes this. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So this sign, when it's not believed, causes judgment. Clearly the Holy Spirit means business, both in reaping a harvest and also making Israel ripe for judgment if they reject the message of the gospel. Either way, the message of the gospel was destined to expand into ever-increasing territory where, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And with this in mind, finally, I think it's important that we discuss finally in an introductory way, the last B, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit taking place here at Pentecost. Now I have a real burden to do this with you because when I was saved back in 1989, I was told that being saved was one blessing, but that there was a second blessing to be pursued and that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I knew nothing. This is what I was told. I was told that I should seek God and I should ask him to bless me with the Holy Spirit. And that when I did, and if he granted it, then I would start speaking in another language, just like it says here in Acts 2. So they took this model here and applied it directly to today, which I think is a mistake. But I prayed, and then I responded to an altar call to receive the Holy Spirit, and they told me to open my mouth and start to speak, and nothing happened. And I stood there for quite a while, I was praying in my heart, I was trying to be as open and receptive as I could be, but nothing happened. And you can imagine how I, and many, 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 many others felt, was there something wrong with me? Was God displeased with me? Was I just not ready? Was I even saved? It's important to allow other parts of scripture to help us interpret such a phenomenon as this at Pentecost. And the Apostle Paul helpfully gives us clarity that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is directly related to our union with Christ, with being a part of his body, being a part of his church, his elect. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
verses 12 to 13. In uh, so many other scriptures in the New Testament, there's just a description of what happened when the Spirit came upon people. But this here tells you what's happening. So this is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. Paul the Apostle writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit. So this scripture shows that it is impossible for true Christians to have not been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Look closely at verse 13. In one spirit, it says, which is the Holy Spirit, clearly, we were all baptized into one body, again, clearly, Christ's body, yeah? And all were made to drink of that one spirit. The conclusion, you can't be in Christ's body and not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Ergo, therefore, all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. Why? Because all Christians are a part of Christ's body. And you become a part of Christ's body through being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Paul reiterates this idea in Romans 8, 9, where he says, You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So to state it positively then, anyone who belongs to Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now it is true that the scriptures tell us to be continually filled with the Spirit, which is something all Christians must do throughout their lifetime. Ephesians 5.18 But this is not the baptism of the Spirit. This is walking with the Spirit, being guided and obedient to the Word of God and growing in holiness and purity. Another way of saying it is the way Paul says it in Colossians 3.16 let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The baptism of the Spirit happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person and they believe and they come to a saving faith. They are then united with Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an extra experience that you need to seek after. But you do seek to be continually filled in the Spirit reading his word, by thinking of those things that are praiseworthy and noble, by being obedient to God. By, as Colossians says, by letting the word of Christ dwelling richly in you. So to conclude, Pentecost was a significant turning point in God's plan of salvation. And this had been foreshadowed in the Old Testament, not only by the prophets, but even by the calendar feasts of Israel. Previously in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon someone, like the judges or the prophets. 
to equip them for a task or for an office. And then often it would be removed or fade away. But at Pentecost, in accordance with God's sovereign will, the Holy Spirit filled believers internally and remained indwelling in them. Pentecost, along with three other outpourings that are documented in Acts, corresponding to the spread of the gospel into Judea, Samaria and the Gentile world, were unique events marked by unique manifestations which highlighted their significance, specifically that all peoples had a place in the kingdom and in the church. One nation or one ethnicity or gender or social standing had no bearing over another when it came to full membership in God's kingdom. All believers were baptised in the Spirit and all were members of Christ's body. The sound of the wind and the appearance of the fire and even the speaking of unknown languages were dramatic and they were supernatural, they were signs, but they were nonetheless temporal. They were not to become the norm, although their occurrence was written down for our benefit. But the new life and joy and the desire to please God, the fellowship and the passion to worship and pray, the freedom from the power of sin and other bondages, the boldness and the power to witness, and the gifts given to serve the body of Christ into maturity and to prepare for ministry, these were not temporal, and they are amongst us today, because as believers, we all have been baptised by the Holy Spirit. Amen.